You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, Max. Hey, Aaron. Uh, we have a special announcement this week. We do. We are ready to take your money. <laughs> that is correct. Uh, people have asked how they can support the show. It's free and it costs money to do, like all the other things that Longform does, like our site, longform.org, and our app. Uh, so we're answering that question. You can now give us a small recurring contribution. How much do? How much should people give? I don't know. A cup of coffee. Cup of coffee. A couple little, of bucks a month. A couple of bucks a month. Um, whatever works for you. It doesn't get you anything. It doesn't unlock anything. Everything we do is still going to be free and a resource for students around the world. So how can people give, Max? Go to longform.org slash donate. It is very straightforward. And uh, just to be clear, like... The sponsors that we work with are fantastic. They make this thing go. MailChimp in particular has basically like funded our lives for the last couple of years. But if you find value in the show, if you find value in the site or the app, we could really use the help. So go to longform.org slash donate. There's a link in the show notes. Uh, we really appreciate the support. Okay. Thank you, everyone. Here's the show. Hello, and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist, joined by Aaron Lammer. Max Linsky. What's up, you guys? Did you, um, did you almost <laughs> forget my name? <laughs> I almost said Aaron Linsky, which, uh, what's the difference between you two guys, really? Well, it was cool. It was really cool of Max to name his son after me. A little weird, but. <laughs> this is my child, Aaron Lammer Linsky. Um, who's on the show today? Today we have Ta-Nehisi Coates. Our, our regular listeners will know that uh, Ta-Nehisi has been on the podcast twice before. Uh, we had him on a third time because he has a new book out as of this summer called Between the World and Me. You might have heard of it, New York Times bestseller list and acclaimed all over the place. We talked about the book. We talked about everything that's happened since the book. And we talked a little bit about David Carr. That's the David that you'll hear referenced in the interview. It also just so happens that uh, he won a MacArthur Genius Grant. And last night, actually after we taped this, he won the National Book Award, which is pretty exciting. It's also pretty exciting that we've been doing this podcast for long enough that, like, when we started, Tanahasi was like, oh, writing features for The Atlantic. Yeah. Really yeah. good stories. Yeah. He's and, like uh, a uh, college junior, I think, when we started. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's, it's just like, uh, I feel like people should go back if they have not listened to those prior episodes. Go back and listen to them yeah. and then listen to this one. Uh, back then, we didn't have any sponsors because the sound was terrible. Yeah. But uh, now we do. Yeah. And Evan has one of them. I've got one of them. It's The Message. It's a podcast. 
It's from GE Podcast Theater and Panoply, our friends at Panoply. And you can listen to this podcast anywhere you're listening to the podcast you're listening to right now, like iTunes. Uh, it is about a message from outer space and an attempt to decode that message. You can follow it over eight episodes. It is fascinating. If you have a fascinating idea, Aaron. Many. For a website, blog, or online store. So many. I would recommend Squarespace. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. Build your idea today. Squarespace.com. As always, we are sponsored by MailChimp. If you have a business and that business conducts email business, that business should be on MailChimp. Over 8 million businesses are. Thank you, MailChimp. I have one more thank you for MailChimp, which is uh, I was in Atlanta last week yeah. under some uh, uh, not great circumstances, and I really needed a favor. And I called MailChimp. They're based in Atlanta. Yeah. And they did me that favor. Thank you, MailChimp, Lane Shakespeare. Those people are uh, actually very nice, great people. Lane Shakespeare, as previously mentioned, a real person. <laughs> <laughs> a really good person. Yeah. Uh, another good person is Tanahazi Coates. And here he is with Evan Rapp. Tanahazi, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me You're, back. Uh, first, uh, third time guest on the podcast. Am I seriously? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I should get a medal. Have you been up to anything since we talked last? <laughs> <laughs> I forgot to research to find out if you've written anything. Or I remember the first time we did this, and I was like, "I think this is the last thing I'm, I'm going to do." Like, I don't think I have any more ideas. <laughs> I think this is it. I think the chick is up. That was it. Uh, so this is this is actually a post career interview. We're trying yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. Figure out what you what you've done now after you left <laughs> journalism. I was gonna make some joke about calling you genius. Um, oh, Jesus Christ! Because of that MacArthur thing. Please don't. But a lot of a lot has happened since we talked. That was only a year ago too. It wasn't a yeah. long time ago that we talked. Yeah, exactly. And you talked about uh, working on the book at the time. Did I really? Is, yeah, that's a place actually where I want to want to start. But um, do you remember what I said yeah, about the book? Yeah, I do. So one thing you said, I mean, we almost left it on a on a cliffhanger in the last time we talked because you're talking about the book, you're talking about reading a lot of Baldwin, and you actually said, I turned in a draft, I literally have a draft in my bag. Good God. And, and that the type of writing you were trying to do uh, was very difficult uh, because it was about sort of steeping in all this experience <laughs> and then trying to write then sit down and write through all that. And then when the book came out, I read this uh, little bit on the Atlantic, somewhere on the Atlantic associated with the excerpt, where you said the part about writing it to your son did not happen until the fourth draft. Yeah, it was very late. So I actually, that's a kind of a place where I wanted to start, which is now a lot of people are familiar with the book and its structure. It's critiqued and reviewed and all these debates that we can get into some of that. But in terms of when you sat down to take that draft from version two to version three to version four, and then it became a letter to your son, how did that process happen? You know, it was difficult because it was like with, with most of my other long form work, there was some sort of arc that, I, that was clear when I went and sat down to write. Yeah. There was some sort of theory or something and I just I, I just for this um, and I don't know if I said this last time, I had written a case for reparations and I felt strongly that I, I wanted to write something that was more individual it was more feeling based yeah. more heart based and um, but what, what is that how do you do that I mean that that is not <laughs> instructions at all you know what I mean that, that, that right. is nothing um, I did have one you know 
stake that I that I put down, and that was I interviewed um, uh, Prince Jones's mom, and that gave me something solid to hold on to and to think about, like while I was writing. That was actually the cliffhanger <laughs> that we left it on, which is you said I asked you in the way that you sought out stories to yeah. build the case for reparations around. Did you go do reporting for this book that you were writing? And you said, I did do one thing, and I'll tell you about it later. That's how I think that's how we ended. That's the, what I said. Yeah, I think that's how we ended the podcast, which I assume was Prince Jones's. <laughs> that was his mom, mother. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah well, yeah, tell yeah. a little bit if someone happens to have not read the book. Okay, tell a little bit about the role that Prince Jones plays. Well, um, the book is between the world and me, and um, you know, it's written as a letter to my son. It's you know, an, an attempt, as I said, to you know, explain how it feels to be a human being. You know, living under white supremacy um, or living under the heritage, the legacy, you know, however, however you want to put it. Um, Prince Jones was uh, a friend of mine from Howard University uh, who, in uh, 2000, uh, was killed by uh, a police officer uh, from Prince George's County in the suburbs of uh, Washington, D.C. and Maryland. The officer followed him through three jurisdictions and shot him um, yards from his fiance's home. And that has sat with me for the past 15 years. And for some reason, when I when I thought about this book, I had this question in my head the whole time. Like I, I always wondered, like how his mother like continued. I just didn't, I didn't understand it. Yeah, because it hurt me. And this was like, you know, his mother. So I tracked her down. Miraculously, she agreed to talk to me. I, I still don't understand completely why. How did you approach her? Well, in the story that I was first on here for, it's so funny. Before I was um, favorite black president, mm-hmm. there is a, a small part about Prince Jones at the end of that story. Uh huh. And it talks about him being killed and how I felt. And she reached out to me after that. And I, we had a couple of exchanges, but I actually lost her information. Like, I, so, so I was like, oh, my God. So I finally, you know, caught up with her. And um, I asked if I could call. And we called. I called her. And I just told her what I was doing. I thought I was writing this book. And her son's death was tremendously important to me. Um, her son was tremendously important to me. And I had been thinking about it for a long time. And... This is right around New Year's. The first thing she said to me was that she had um, just, she was just getting ready to take down her, her Christmas decorations and she had a stocking up for her daughter and the stocking up for Prince. And that just, like, you know, it's like 15 years later. Like, that's, that just, it just hit me. Yeah. That detail's in the, in the book. That's a powerful yeah, detail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it hit me right away. And um, it's interesting to, like, work on two levels. Like, personally, I was affected. But as a storyteller, I was like, oh my God, I have to talk. Like, I, like as a storyteller, I was like, you know what I mean? Like, this actually is, you know, something. And then when I when I went to talk to her, I had all this information. And, I, you know, it was clearly, like, to me, like, very, very affecting emotionally. But I didn't know what to do with it. Like, should that be the arc of the book? Like, should it just be, like, like should the whole thing just be, like, Prince? Mm-hmm. Like, should it have been written that way? You know, like, like beginning, like, beginning, middle, end? Like, should it just be his life? Like, should I do that? You know, or, or was it something else? Or could I write towards that? Could I like you know use that almost as like a you know a guide point? And say this is where I'm trying to write to. This is the most you know this is the emotional part. And in all of my stories, I have like um, an aesthetic preference for backloading mm-hmm. the stuff that I consider the most you know emotionally hard hitting to deal with. And I just did that a- again here. I like to finish hard. I really do. Hmm. You know, I-, I like to finish you know with with like some something that 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 that's a little different and. It helped though because when even when I went to write, you know, even when I was talking about my time back in Baltimore, even when when I finally got to the letter to my son, I, I knew what I was writing towards. I yeah. knew what the end was. Uh huh. And that, that helped a lot. And there's a there's a moment in that conversation that's just a powerful sort of journalistic moment 
where you're almost describing whether or not you're sort of like resurfacing this pain for yeah. her yep. in this moment that you're also trying to capture to get yep. some sort of answer from her. Yeah. I think about that ethically a lot. <clears throat> like, you know, I felt like it would be a good thing. I felt like I would represent it well, but I also was like, am I, am I actually helping? <laughs> like, am I really helping in any sort of way? And I've talked to her since the book came out. She's very, very happy about the book and very, very happy about everything that, that happened. But at times, like, am I... Am I helping? And at the same time, like I think I was kind of burned because I was like, well, this woman trusted me to do this. I, I hope I do it right. And not only that, I hope I do it right. And I hope, I mean, just to be human about this, I hope she likes it. I hope she appreciates it. I really do. Because, you know, you can do things right and it just, you know, because your loyalty can't be to the person. It could have gone some other way. People react all sorts of ways. Right. But I work really, really hard to be very, very truthful about, you know, what the encounter was like, about who she was. Um, and at the same time, be respectful. She was in pain. I mean, as anybody would, you know what I mean? She was she was clearly in pain. And then I saw her. Um, actually, I, I took uh, my, my, my wife and my son down to have brunch with her in August. So this is like a book had come out by them. Mm-hmm. And she was so happy. And she was so like, that, I've never had an experience where I wrote something and it pleased somebody that much. You know what I mean? Like it brought, you know, like, like light to somebody's life like that. I mean, that's not really a reason to write, you know, but it's, it's nice when it happens. Yeah, I mean it's I mean it's telling a story that I'm sure she she maybe well, I'm not sure but she maybe she was afraid would be lost or she was that's, the only that, one that was it, keeping it right? alive. Yeah, that's it. That, and like. that's what I thought too. And that's what she said, you know, it was like um well, you know, people hear his name now. He's not just sort of, you know, dismissed and just lost the history. But then you think maybe other people don't want to hear. Like they just like I'm talking about like somebody else in that same situation, they just want to get past it, move on, you know, and live. Yeah, but, you don't know, I guess. You no. don't know until it happens. Did you interview any other people? Did you do a sort of any sort of David Carr and go back and interview <laughs> people from your past and No, ask but him, you know what's in there? What's in there is all my other journalism from the Atlantic. So there's like yeah. there's like, you know, a piece I did on Jordan Davis's mom, who I did interview. And yeah. I wrote it up for the Atlantic, but that's in there and it's kind of done in a different way. There is reporting that I did for the case for reparations that didn't make it into the case for reparations. There's an incident where I, where I was riding around in Chicago with the Cook County Marshals, mm-hmm. and they were evicting people. And I saw this guy get ev- get evicted, and his kid was there. Right. Some yeah. of that stuff was on the blog. You know what I mean? Like yeah, they're, yeah. They're, they're like scraps of stuff that I was able to, to put into the book. But you know, it, it's very interesting to me, like to think about this because, and I, and I might have said this before. It's like I think you know, had I not. Matt David, I, I might have gone another path and not been a journalist. I don't know that like my my instincts, you know, go. I don't know that I, like um, I have those same re- repertorial instincts, and yet it's such a great tool. <laughs> I mean, it's a tremendous, tremendous tool because it's like I think like my natural instinct is to like sit here and theorize and frankly bullshit. But journalism is such a check on yeah. that. Like, you know what I mean? Like, here is what I think might happen and what I might expect. Then the person's like right in front of you. So it's like I had all my theories going into that interview uh, with Dr. Jones. But when she said to me, um, you know, she told me about Prince Nine. She said, I saw, she told me about saying 12 years a slave. She said, that was how I felt. I felt like I've been snatched back. I've been taken back. She said, here's this guy. He had everything. And I felt like that happened to me. And something clicked. You know what I mean? Like I had thought something like that, but she really, really pulled it together for me. Mm-hmm. The same with Jordan Davis's mom, talking to her, and when she turned and addressed my son, you know, and, and said that, right. you know, told him, you know, to wear his hoodie and play his music, like something like really, really clicked. I guess what I'm saying, I'm so happy I have that tool. It deepens everything. It just gives the kind of depth and breath. And I don't even know that people are aware of it, but it, it really does, man. I mean, if you don't have 
you know, um, as David used to say, tell stories, tell stories. That's what he used to tell me, tell stories. He didn't tell me this. He didn't tell me this. And I guess I can say this now because he's passed away. He didn't tell me this. But evidently he caught wind last year that I was, I guess to make all the people called him. Not this year, last year. And he had told uh, one of my editors at the Atlanta that he, he really thought I was gonna I was gonna get it last year. I, I didn't get it. Um, I you have to understand. I didn't know all this. Like I, I right. didn't hear. I heard all this. This came after. Yeah, yeah. Scott, yeah. Scott Stiles, my editor, told me this after I got it. So this is like something I heard like a month ago. And um, you know, because everything's real secretive, right? And yeah. David never David never said anything to me about it. Yeah. You know? Who wants to hear that they almost had a MacArthur? No one wants to. <laughs> <laughs> no one wants to hear that. So, you know, me and him never had that conversation. Um, but, you know, it came after he passed away. <laughs> and he didn't get to see. And he didn't get to see Between the World and Me. And he didn't get to see the New York Magazine cover. And he didn't, he didn't, he didn't get to see. When I first came to New York, I couldn't have seen any of this. I, I was like, man, I felt like a complete washout. I was in my little apartment eating donuts and playing video games. <laughs> and the only thing I was doing good with my life was being a father and a husband. That was, that was it. That was the only thing I was actually good at. You know, everything else I felt like I was really failing at. And he, you know, David was a big shot. He was working in New York Magazine. He was doing some work for The Atlantic later, you know, Inside.com, obviously, later. He was mm -hmm. at, at the Times. And he would call me in, like, just out of the blue. And he would just say, I want you to come have lunch with me. And I was, like, so low at that point. So this would have been, like, 2001. So we had known each other mm. about five years. But we mm -hmm. were not as close as we are now, Like uh, I guess, as we became. We were close, but not. So in my head, I'm like, why is this white dude calling me up to do this? <laughs> like, I don't mean that in like, um, I don't want to be around this white dude. I mean, right. like, why is this really like, successful What is person? his motivation? Yes, and that, and that too. You know what I mean? And I didn't think like his motivation was to get anything out of me. It's just like, why are you spending this time with me? You know, he would call me into the city, you know, and he would ask me what I had going and what I was planning on doing, and he would try to help. And he would, you know, lecture me on how I was way, way too hard on myself. This is a dude who was like, I mean, just lived with a foot up my ass when I worked for him. <laughs> I mean, he swore I, I, I was too hard on myself. I mean, he was just, he was just, you know, such a tremendous giving human being. He had this, um, this vacation home, and this was years ago. And he said, "Listen, you should come up, and you should, you know, you should stay with, you know, you know, me and Jill and the girls sometime." And I said, "Okay." You got to remember, like, I'm still at this point, like, in my 20s, like, you know, and not that far out of West Baltimore, right? Yeah. And then he's like, and then after that, you know, you we'll just give you the keys and you and you and Kenyatta and Samara, you guys can just go up, you know, yourselves and you could just hang out. And I was like, again, like, what, what the hell is this? Why did you do? Like, why would you do that? <laughs> like, why would you do that? More than anything, I regret that. I regret that attitude. And I regret that attitude because, like, what he was doing was being loving, Right. But I was not in a position in, in my life at, at that point to accept it. Now, I got there, you know, relatively quickly. I got a lot, a lot more secure in myself, you know, over the years. And, you know, we, 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 you know, we were great, great friends, man. We talked about everything. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And eventually did go up to, to as, he used to as he called it, the cabin. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I had a good time, enjoyed. He was a great, oh, my God. He was a great friend to my son, to my nephew, to my wife. I mean, just... Just a good, 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 solid dude, beyond whatever he did for the writing. But I still regret that I was not more accepting of what he was trying to give, that I couldn't, like, like, that I didn't have enough self-worth to say, 
maybe he just likes you. Yeah. Like, maybe he just likes you as a human being. You know, you are worth that. Yeah. That is okay. Well, I think if you could say anyone who would recognize that uh, sometimes it takes a person a long time to get to a place, it would probably be David. And I think that was it. It took me a while to get that. But that was what I got. That was what I got. I mean, you you know, I felt like I was down, man. He was like, you don't, you don't know nothing about down. One time I was, we were having lunch. And I don't mean to make this a David Carr thing. That's was fine by me. <laughs> right. We were having lunch one time, and I was telling him, and Samari was, like, really, really young. I guess this is all part of the book. Samari was really, really young. Yeah, he was sitting together, and he, I, I was telling him how I had just seen my dad, and how my dad would come up to New York, and every time I saw my dad, he would give me money, right, always. I mean, he knew he didn't have any money, mm-hmm. you know, and he knew I was, you know, barely working. Um and I, I said to Dave, I said, I don't, I don't understand why this dude keeps giving me money. I just, I just don't get it. Like, I feel like I'm really fucking up here. I don't, I don't know why he's, you know, supporting me. You know, and it wasn't much money, but it was, in fact, a lot of money at, for what, where we were. I mean, it'd be like $100, but that was a lot. Yeah. And he said, no, no, no. He said, I, I think you're a great bet. I think, you know, you, he's making a great bet on you. I think you're a great investment. And he told me a story about um, how he was in rehab. And they had put him with a, with a sponsor. And the guy, I want to find this guy so bad and talk to him. I think I got a David Carr book in me. I don't know what that is, but I think I do. Anyway, mm. like I think I need it for myself, actually. Yeah, well. You know what I mean? I think I need it for myself. Anyway, he said to me, he said, um, his sponsor had on a watch, and it was a really, really nice watch. And David said to him, and this is, you know, David just out of reality. This is not David Carr, New York Times David Carr. You know, he said, that's, that's a really, really nice watch. And the guy said to him, you like this? And David said, yeah. And he said the guy took the watch off his arm and said, you can have it. Just take it. Just take it. And he was stunned that someone would do that for him. You know what I mean? That he could be as low as he saw himself. And someone would do that. And so when he was telling me, you know, your dad's making a good investment, like he was remembering people who invested in him. Yeah. And... That, more than anything, is why I am sad he's not here for all of this. Because I, I don't know if this is going to sound right, but it, it, it's for him. It's to say to him, you you were right. Maybe he did know. It, I think if he were here, he would say that. Okay, like, I, I knew in fact, all I know. He would, that's, <laughs> And not only that, he would say, Ta-Nehisi, you know, you, come on now. I mean, it feels weird to say, to say it like this, you know. Um, but I think he would say, you know, listen, we, I, I didn't see, you know, I wasn't here for the Genius Grant, wasn't here for all of this other stuff. But I saw enough. And even before that, you know, I, I didn't I actually didn't need to see too much to know, you know, who you were. I always knew who you were because he did. I mean, I would wash out at places and I did, you know, wash out at the Village Voice, wash out at the time at time. And he would say, it's, it's not you. It's not you. It's them. And I'd be like, you're crazy. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> so, I mean, I, as you can tell, given how long I talked about that, you know, I'm, I'm still somewhat processing it. Hey, it's Max. I'm going to put things on hold for just a second and tell you a little bit about two sponsors uh, who are making the show possible this week. We appreciate their support. First up is Casper. And if you are in the market for a mattress right now, there is really no reason to go anywhere other than Casper. They've just nailed the entire mattress buying experience. Here's why. I'm just going to list out all the reasons why you should buy a mattress with Casper. Number one, the mattresses are fantastic. They're great. They are. Uh, they have two technologies, latex foam and memory foam. They've got just the right sink, just the right bounce. We've got one of these mattresses. It's fantastic. You are going to have better nights and brighter days. Top of the line mattress. That's number one. Number two, 
it's super easy. You don't have to go to the store. You don't have to waste your whole Saturday like haggling with some salesperson uh, and then paying a fortune for a mattress. That's the third reason. It's a deal. It's actually a great deal. A twin is 500 bucks. A king is 950 And if you go to uh, casper.com slash longform, that's casper.com slash longform, and use the offer code longform, you get 50 bucks off. So it's an even better deal. Uh, thanks so much to them for sponsoring the show. If you are in the market for a mattress, casper.com slash longform. It is the best way to buy one today. Also sponsoring the show this week, Masterclass. And if you are looking to improve yourself... I suggest Masterclass. Here's why. Uh, their classes taught by masters. And I'm not talking about like, he's a master. Like actual people at the very, very top of their fields. So you could take acting with Dustin Hoffman, uh, tennis with Serena Williams, singing with Christina Aguilera, photography with Annie Leibovitz, Usher teaching performance. I mean, you're not going to get any better than these people. They've also got a writer, and not just any writer, James Patterson who's written, I don't know, eight gazillion best-selling books. And over the course of a couple of different classes, it's all just 90 bucks, Patterson walks you through his entire process, outlining, marketing your book, how to finish things, how to get it done. Uh, it's really incredible. The videos are produced at the highest possible level. They've got like actual Academy Award-winning directors doing these things. It's fantastic. Go check it out. It's masterclass.com slash longform. That's masterclass.com slash longform. Go take a class. It's 90 bucks. You get lifetime access, and there are no better instructors in the world. Thanks so much to Casper and Masterclass for making this show possible. Let's get back to it. Let's go back to the book for a second. Mm -hmm. I want to get back to this this idea of, of writing it as a letter because I, th I feel like I would never have thought that you started writing it as something else. Yes, it's like a right. testament to the power of revision somehow. Yeah, totally Editing is. and revision. No, it that, is. You're exactly There's right. no way you'd read it now and say, like, this seems like right. an essay that he 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 put uh, Dear Samari on the bot on the top <laughs> and then like <laughs> right, right. let it go. Like it's right. seamlessly it feels like that's what it was and that it just sort of flew off your fingertips as a as a as a letter. Right. And do you do you have any memory of like of that turn of when? Oh, when... memory! I got I got like the last draft. Yeah, you know, which looks a lot like the book, by the way. Yeah, yeah. The top is very very different, and then it you know kind of you know just uh, sort of um, shades into the book into the draft as it was before. Yeah, and then there are little spots where I turn and address him that weren't there before. Uh huh. Those are quoted a lot. In yeah, I know. And that, that's wild because they they're not they're not in that draft. They're huh. not in that draft. But when I went back through. I had to remind myself as I was, because I think when I was going back through at that point, I actually was going back through knowing I had to change the voice and with my and with uh, my editor, Chris Jackson's edits on there. Like I think like that, uh -huh. that, that's like what I was, what I was doing, right? You have to remember as you're writing this, you were talking to this kid. You know, is this a moment for you to, you know, take, take a second and say something directly to the kid? You know, how does this apply to the kid's life? And so I, I did that all the way through, but... Most of that was written. Oh, I mean, it was like, it was yeah. for the most part done. And like, I think had I not done that, the book would have got published. You know, by that point, we were clear we were going to publish the book. They, mm -hmm. I think Chris had sent out pieces of it to, you know, other editors so that they could see what it was. And they were already excited about it. But he just felt like it was missing that, that extra step. Like, he just, I mean, if I can, you know, be so bold, I think he felt like it was good, but it was missing something that would make it great. Mm -hmm. Like, even when I suggested that to him to make it a lot, of, I thought actually it was a great risk. Because here's the thing, like you do that and you could easily be overly sentimental, man. Mm -hmm. I mean, this this like, you know, talk thing has been bandied about so much 
that like you running into like the iceberg of a cliche is just right there waiting for you. Yeah. Like it really is. It, 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 it's right there. You know what I mean? It's a very, very dangerous thing to do that because, you know, people address their kids and it's like, oh, I love you. And, you know, like, <laughs> you hear that gauzy sort of tone that kind of <laughs> comes in and it'll be okay. And the cool thing was that I didn't really have to watch out for that because all I had to actually think about when I went back through it was how do I talk to Samari? How do I actually talk to him? Yeah. Like, I didn't have to think about, like, if I could, like, dismiss out of my head some New York Times story I had read about the talk, if I could throw, throw all of that out of my head and think, no, 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 how do I talk to my individual son? Mm-hmm. You know, forget everybody else, forget everything, be as specific as you possibly can. And that's how I talk to him. That, mm-hmm. that actually is. And I think that killed a lot of the sentimentality. You know, we are not a, a particularly sentimental house. Um, and so I think like that allowed for me not to like trip over that. And did you have a conversation with him to say, I'm going to put you in this book. Uh, yeah, You're going to be a character to. in this book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, what I said to him, I said, listen, because um, he had seen drafts of it yeah. without him, without the letter. It's uh-huh. not a letter. To, you know, that's the other thing. Because people actually say, well, what does he think of? Has he read the book? I said, right. yeah, but he's, not like you've read the book. <laughs> right. Because he's read it along the way. Yeah. And so that becomes a, like a different thing if you see the person creating it. Like it's not, it's not quite as exciting when you see the book finished. Like you saw the sausage get made. You know what I mean? It's not mm-hmm. the same thing. As, you know, you sitting at the table and somebody serves it to you. And I said to him, I said, listen, I, you know, we have this idea to actually turn this book into a letter to you. Are you okay with that? Um, and he said, yeah. He said, I'm okay with it. You know? And so then I went and, you know, rewrote that. And then I gave it to him after I had rewritten it. Do you, you think know? he was thinking, not that many people are going to read this book anyway? <laughs> yeah, I think- mean, I think we all were thinking that. <laughs> I think we all were thinking that. I think it was like, yeah, it's no big deal. <laughs> it's not, it's not like going to be a New York Times bestseller or something. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm also I'm as interested in I'm sure a million people have asked you if your son is ready but I'm, I'm as interested in what your father thinks having also yeah. read your first book and then this book and because there's a lot in here about how the ideas that germinated with you in your household when you right. were young positive and negative drove you through life so in, anybody that's like close like that like in this book like my mom and my dad like they saw it way before publication come like they didn't see it as Samari and my wife saw it. They right. actually didn't see it. They, they they saw it like really, really rough drafts. By the time I, I showed it to them when it was like, okay, here's a thing. Like, yeah. I have a thing to show I you. I see. We had had this conversation, uh, me and my dad and my mom, uh, when The Beautiful Struggle came out. Um, and the conversation was, listen, if I do this, I have to do this. And if you don't want me to do this, tell me not to do this and then I won't do it. Like, it's just not worth it. I'll go do something else. It's fine. Plain things to write about. Yeah. We didn't have that conversation about between the world and me, but I I I, I told them that they were in there. By that point, they knew there's nothing in that book that they didn't know, you know. Um, and I and there might not be much in that book that I haven't said publicly already. In fact, even the bad yeah. stuff, you know what I mean? Yeah, like right. like what would folks would consider the bad stuff. So my dad, he read it. When my mom read it, and it really affected her emotionally. It really really affected her. Um, and she told this story about me being born. And shortly after, I was born, by her breaking down, crying, realizing that like she couldn't protect me, like um, so she had like a strong like emotional reaction to it. My dad had a very literary reaction to it. <laughs> you know, I went through it line by line. I think you should do this. I think you should do that. I think you should take out this. I don't think this is working. I think this is okay. <laughs> you know, um, it helped. Yeah, it helped. I mean, he had edits. He had actual edits. Wow. Yeah. He didn't have anything about um how he came off in the book though. He didn't really deal with that too much it didn't really bother him yeah yeah 
Uh, we were talking a little bit before we started about what comes after right. the book coming out and the book being successful, New York Times bestseller list. One thing that just really intrigues me about this book, I think it happened really with the case for reparations a little bit too, is I feel like you're asked a lot almost to answer for the audience that is reading the book or it's critiqued as this is something that white liberals are really holding up mm -hmm. and like really worshiping mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that that's somehow a negative thing or uh, <laughs> what can the audience take away from this? I'm right. curious what what was your actual view writing it in terms of what kind of audience you want? Like people ask you, is this book or they'll talk about, is this book written for African-Americans? Is this book written <laughs> for white people? It's just interesting because most books are not... Nobody asks that about no, uh, no, you're right. Every book on the New York Times bestseller list, right, like, right, right, was right, your right, book written for white right, people? Right, right, it's right, like, right. Well. And they don't really ask it about. I mean, for the most part, the mainstream books that like I love and aspire. I yeah. mean, nobody, you know, I mean, Ragtime, like the novel, has a very leftist political bent. One might argue, but no one says, "Is this written for lefties?" Yeah, like, is Ragtime for lefties? I mean, I'm, I'm black, and so you know. <laughs> You know, we can start there. So I, I guess in some way it was, I don't want to say it was written for black people, although I've said that before. I don't think that's accurate. I think it's more accurate to say that it comes out of the African-American experience. And I wanted to write it as though there were no white people in the room. Like sometimes I read or I've read in the past African-American authors and I feel like they are trying to hedge things. They aren't saying things that they really, really feel because they feel like somebody else might get offended. They probably will. <laughs> but they feel like somebody else might get offended. Mm -hmm. People will shut down. Mm -hmm. Conversations shut down. I wanted to liberate myself of that concern. Um, I wanted to speak very, very, very directly. And, and I think, you know, to some extent, like, all authors, like, try to, you know, like, they aspire to this. Like, they try to speak as honestly as they possibly can. And that, that's, that's where, you know, uh, the power really, really comes from. Who was I writing for? I guess for me. I mean, I guess that's that's the ultimate answer, you know. Um, I probably have answered that all kinds of ways, you know, uh, over over various interviews. But if I have, it's only because, like, that's like I don't I don't have like a firm hand, you know. Like I, I didn't sit down saying I am writing this for, mm -hmm. and maybe that's the way to, to to think about it. Like, I guess maybe another question is, what were you thinking when you wrote it? And what I was thinking while well, I was thinking about Prince, I was thinking about um, Baldwin a lot. And I was thinking, I, as you said, I talked about this last time. I was thinking about what he did, and I thought it was absolutely, absolutely incredible. And I wondered why, you know, more people didn't do it. Um, I was thinking about the case for reparations, and I was thinking about something about that piece that left me unsatisfied that I really wanted to go back to. And I guess above all, I was thinking, you know, Fire Next Time is such a beautiful, beautiful book. It's such a short, beautiful, impactful book. And I just, I wanted to write something like that. I wanted to write something short that people could digest really easily that, you know, had all the weight and all the fire in it that, that I felt. Was there a discussion of how long it should be or did would, could yeah. you have gone on longer? Were I wanted longer it to versions? be shorter. Yeah, shorter. Want, yeah, yeah, first draft I think might be 20,000 words. Hmm. I literally, like, put, like, the text of the fire next time in a document and counted the words, hmm. like, to figure out how you, because I, I was more interested in how you get a book that short. Because I, I love, you know, I love that you can sit down like for like three or four hours and read that book and be done and then go on with your day and, you know, think about it. And die. Like my editor was like, that will not work. You can't. We will not publish a 20,000 word book. <laughs> so we just could, won't do it. They could just staple bind it right, and uh, right. distribute <laughs> right, it as right. kind of a pamphlet. Right, right, right. But, you know, they do that with poetry all the time. That's true. This is our compromise. 150 pages. 
And now that it's out, I feel like you must have people, I mean, including me, let's admit, asking you to come uh, do things, interviews, mm. and just people coming at you mm-hmm. in a way. I mean, we even talked about this about the case for reparations, mm-hmm. like doing press. But now I feel like it must be an entirely different level. It is. And first of all, how does that feel? Does that feel good? <laughs> no. Why not? <laughs> I think like the politics of the work is important to me, right? Yeah. But at least as important is, is the actual writing. Like, I, it, the writing is what I do, and I love doing it. Like, I love doing the writing. Like, my saving grace, you know, uh, throughout this tour has been, you know, working on the comic book for Marvel. It's the only thing that's kept me sane. Oh, I want to talk about that. Yeah. yeah. Working on those scripts is the only thing that has kept me, like, sane. That, that's what I like to do. Those scripts are very, very different than, than, than like, the politics of this book. They're just a different, a different thing. And so... Mostly when I get called to, to talk or to do interviews, it's not about, like, the actual craft at all. In fact, I think it's the first place I've talked about the craft since I started. Mm-hmm. You know, um, no one cares about that. <laughs> and but people want you to talk about the book and give your capsule of what the book is about and everything yeah. else. But they probably, they want answers from you at some They do want answers. Now. And I, I say about 40% of any conversation or any Q&A I have is I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I really, really don't know. I actually don't know. And I don't, like, there's a thing that happens with black writers where um, because you're writing about race and because of where race exists, like, you kind of get muddled in with, like, activists and politicians and, and, and those sorts of people. But that's not, I mean, it's not really where you live. You know what I mean? You live in, in, in the world of, of the literary and, and the imaginative, in fact. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, the political imagination also. But it, it's a different orientation. You know, you, you are not trying to pass a senate bill if anything you're trying to get some distance you know from the thing um you're trying to observe and you're trying to free yourself to write you know what you really really feel not something that has to be written to influence legislation but people see you that way all the time you know um and do you think that's it's invalid for them to see you that way like i think of uh you know, Charles Barkley or something always saying like, I don't want this role that you're trying to put on me. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah, yeah, something yeah. else. Yeah. And people are trying to put this role on you is, well, you should tell us what, what should we do? What should, what should we do about yeah. this if these problems persist? Right. Do you feel that it's unfair for them to want that from you? No, I just think that they may not be honest about what they're asking. I've had yeah. told people with you. I mean, that's what the case for reparations is. Right. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, I did that. But it's not the answer people want to hear. Yeah. Because what they want to hear, when, what they want is... What can I get done, if not right now, at least within my lifetime? But see, like, if you're writing and you're in the world of literature, you have to be open to the idea that maybe change doesn't happen within the individual lifetimes of people. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, maybe people live miserably for, like, hundreds of years, and then suddenly something happens. It's possible that there is no answer within your lifetime. But that's a writer answer. That's not a hey, let's go, you know, protest the cops answer. Right. You know what I mean? Like, which is a different answer. The places I feel most at home is like whenever, like I go to universities and talk to historians, for instance, who are completely free of this. Like they just, this is what happened. I guess like aesthetically, that, that's how I, I feel like I write, you know? Um, I think the other thing is like, you know, coming out of hip hop, like really like in the 80s and 90s, which has no desire to be particularly hopeful or anything like that. You know, you listen to Nas Illmatic. I mean, that is not trying to inspire you to be the best you can, <laughs> you know? Um, it is just an observation on, on what the world is, you know? We were talking about um, the Schultz piece uh, from The New Yorker early yeah, on. Yeah, the Catherine Schultz piece. Yeah, about the Catherine the, Schultz the piece. earthquake on the 
Pacific Northwest. Right, right, right. We were talking talk about how beautiful and terrifying that piece is. You know, um, no one reads that piece and finishes and says, yes, but you didn't make me feel better about the world. <laughs> right. Where's the hope? What? <laughs> yeah. You know? <laughs> But you also get, I mean, you when you have something this successful, you sort of become a target in a bigger way for, mm-hmm. you know, the national reviews of the world. And I mean, when it, there was like a national review review that almost like took the idea that you had written the book as a letter to your son and, mm-hmm. you know, flipped it, tried to flip it on his head and said, you know, I hope his son reads, reads <laughs> something else. You know, it's just, it felt like personally you yeah. are now, but do you feel like you're in this arena where people are... That Going bothers after you me a lot yourself? less. Like you the national, it's, it's weird. I mean, I, maybe this is just my own political orientation, but um, the folks who are writing for National Review have no real understanding of African American history, and thus, as far as I'm concerned, have no real understanding of American history. There's, yeah. there's nothing I can do there. If the best you have is yes, but white liberals like him. I mean, if that's <laughs> if that's all we have, then that's not you know really. Or if the best you have is you're too pessimistic. You know, I mean, it just um. That part doesn't bother me at all. I mean, I, I saw that coming a mile away. Yeah. You know, that was there. With that that will always be there with, with, with what I write. These are people who, um, for the most part, and I don't mean this in, you know, in any dis- this part in any disrespectful way, maybe the other part, but this part, these people just don't agree with me. So, okay, fine. They're never going to agree with that. That's fine. That's okay. And I guess it's all ultimately okay. I mean, there were a couple of critiques around women's roles in, right. in the book. And, right. um I mean, they were, I would say they were friendly critiques. They weren't sort of eviscerating but right. um shawnee hilton shawnee hilton yeah. Yeah, yeah she she talked about it in buzzfeed and th- was that were there things that you sort of took on board and said i should have done that differently or did you feel like that's a valid criticism but i i feel comfortable with how i how i approach that i felt like the latter yeah i mean i i wouldn't have wrote this book any differently um i was thinking about this this morning um because somebody who i really 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 have a ton of like a ton of respect for um you know just wrote me and they said listen i really love this book but i wish you had said more about Black women, and not because, like, I'm trying to be PC or inclusive. I just think, you know, you're really, really insightful, you know, when you talk about men. I wish you had, you know, opened that up specifically to black women. I obviously don't feel (laughs) the same way about that that I feel about, like, the National Review critique. But I think um, when I was writing Between the World and Me, I was, like, in my own head of trying to make the book successful. And by successful, I don't mean like sell a lot. I mean actually into a a whole book. And it was like really coming out of me. It was anchored in the experience, uh, in the death of another African-American male. I come from a community, you know, as I I explored in the first book, where fathers really weren't around. And so my relationship to my dad is is a specific thing. That's my relationship to my son is a really specific thing. All, you know, it's all that's maleness in there. I, I tried, you know, throughout the book, you know, like when I talked about violent acts, you know, to make sure I, I mentioned Renisha, Renisha McBride, to make sure I mentioned, you know, Marlene Pinnock. You know, there's a part in the book where I try to, you know, tell somebody to, you know, imagine the enslaved as an actual person. I, you know, I made a specific point to use an African-American woman, not to, you know, um, do, it the, do it the other way and, and, and use a male. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, frankly, had this book been a lot less successful, I don't think the critique would be the same. Because, you know, I wrote another book before this that was a lot more male. And that was not the critique of the book. And I think it was not the critique of the book because no one was looking. Mm-hmm. No one read the book. Mm-hmm. So why was it important? You know, it only became important because the book started getting hailed in certain quarters, to, you know, to, to be blunt, you know, by, by white critics and, you know, white writers. You know, some of them good friends of mine. 
And what that meant was a certain kind of establishment was actually paying attention. So when that happens, then the book becomes representative because maybe that establishment is not paying attention to a bunch of other things that are also happening. And so once it becomes representative, it's like, well, yeah, we're not here. But we're not in this. Like, it's actually not representative. So I guess what I'm saying is I, I feel like the critique has a much to, as much to do with what's in the book as what the reaction was to the book. That book was not written to be representative. Yeah. You know, it's 150 pages. It can't, it can't be representative. It just... After the book came out, you wrote this piece uh, about incarceration and the incarceration state. And, you know, there's like the Michelle Alexander book. Right. And, you know, so it's a different more narrow approach to right. that topic right, and people right, right. could say right. why didn't you address this that and the other and right. the answer is probably somewhat the same I was trying to represent it through this no it is and, and that's, a, that's a great point right there I mean it's like um, we need a bunch of mass incarceration stories you know what I mean because the problem is like complicating it all sorts of layers and people have to tackle you know different pieces of it and I think it was kind of the same thing for Between the World and Me with this issue you know like like the physicality of racism and the vulnerability of individual bodies. I mean, there's a way somebody who, you know, was gay who wrote that book would see the world totally different. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And at the same time, there would be certain portions of it that, that, that were the same. There would be a thread of it that was the same, but the lens of it would be totally, totally different. If you were, say, a gay man who grew up in West Baltimore where I grew up. Now, I didn't, you know, when I was a kid, I didn't really know folks who were out. That's probably the way I should put it. I mean, because yeah. I, you know, I, I, I may well have known folks, but I certainly didn't know folks who were out. But it, if you lived there and you went through that, the world must have looked really, really different to you. Like, like I talk about like the vulnerability of my body. Well, what do you? How do you process that? You know, when it's, it's all this macho stuff laid on top of it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And the macho stuff so revolves around sex with girls. You know, with women and attract. Like, how do you? So it would have been different if a woman had written that. You know, and you're in West Baltimore, right? And in addition to all of the sort of real physical violence that you have to deal with, I mean, you got to worry about, you know, some dude, you know, pulling you into an alley. That, you know, every time, you know, some dude yells out of, you know, the window at you, you know, that that is some sort of actual physical threat. That you see these dudes and you, you, you know what I mean? Like something more can be taken from That's different. Mm -hmm. That's different. But that book should exist. And that book almost certainly does exist within the canon of African-American literature. But in this time, it should exist. I, I think like it's a structural problem, man. It's, yeah. a, it's actually a structural problem. You know, um, there, there needs to be more books like that. You know, and if anything comes out of it, I, and I, I, you know, when I went down to Howard, I had, a, you know, <laughs> several young writers who I interacted with the, you know, on the book. And I said, listen, if that's missing, you go do it. Go yeah. do it. And I'm not just putting that off on you. I'm saying that's what you're supposed to do if you're a writer. Yeah. You know? Yeah. There's this way in which um, you do something that's successful and it sort of can start to perpetuate itself and it gets yeah. this momentum and you become yeah. the person that talks about it and, and right. opines about it. and it, Right. Throw in teaching a few courses on it. Teaching courses on it. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it sounded to me like you don't want to continue down that path. No. no but that, how do you get off that path? Well, as a writer, I'm already off. That book is dead to me as a writer. Yeah. I mean, or I shouldn't say it's dead. It's gone. It's not. It's not really part of me anymore. That's over. I think you just keep writing, you know, and I think you don't define yourself by what people see right now. Mm -hmm. You know, people who write one really, really good or great book and then pile up speaking fees talking just about that book and then, you know, write various short takes or op-eds or teach classes or, or, or do whatever and don't write again. 
probably don't like writing too much. Writing's hard, man. There's all sorts of reasons why. I mean, you can write a great book and have not enjoyed the process at all. Yeah. But as frustrating as Between the World and Me was, when I was done, me and my editor, Chris, we went and talked about next right away. Okay, so what are we doing next? So let's begin the discussion about that. Because I love the work. I don't even want to break from it. Like, I wasn't even like, oh, I'm not going to write anything for three months. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's done. Let's go. Let's yeah. go. That, that part is finished. Now let's go. It's the same at the Atlantic. You know, as soon as, you know, we booked Mass and Con- Okay, so what are we doing next? What do you think we should do next? Because the process of doing it is deeply enjoyable. <laughs> Somebody pays you to be a student. But if you like, you know, like being famous, if you like people recognizing you if you like people telling you how smart you are if those are like and everybody likes that I shouldn't say you know if you like <laughs> everybody wants to be told how smart they are <laughs> at least once in a while right at least once in a while but if that's uppermost for you like that's really really important to you well maybe you shouldn't be writing you know <laughs> <laughs> so explain to me about I was about to explain to you about comics, which is about accurate. Like, <laughs> I probably did every, like, nerd thing in childhood that you Except can imagine. Comics. Yeah, like Dungeons and Dragons, computer programming. And no like, comics? No comics. Oh, my God. I don't understand comics. I, I mean, I vaguely understand the love of comics, but I... Did you even try and was like, I can't get into this? I don't this. even... I, maybe it's it's almost like smoking. Like, I didn't smoke because I wasn't around when yeah, the yeah, kids yeah. started smoking, yeah, and then yeah, they yeah. were all smoking, and I was yeah. too embarrassed to yeah. start. Yeah. And maybe comics were like that. Like, I wasn't there when everyone discovered comics or something. I know that you're writing a comic. It's a big deal because when it was announced, it was written up in the New York Times and then everyone was talking about it all the time. <laughs> but just explain to me what, what this comic is. Oh, man. How do I do this? <laughs> the Black Panther is... is um, I don't think he's Marvel's first African-American. Maybe he is. He's certainly Marvel's first you know, really, really prominent. Um, and I shouldn't say African-American because he's not. Um, black superhero. He is from uh, the mythical nation of Wakanda, and it is almost as if he was written in a direct response to every racist stereotype that anybody ever had. (laughs) Because while he's very, very athletic and handsome and does, you know, all the sort of superhero things, he's also extremely intelligent. Uh One of the five most intelligent people, literally one of the most five most intelligent (laughs) people in the world. So he's a genius. Kind of like me. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I'm joking. I was going to make that joke. He's not one of MacArthur, though. <laughs> um, and he um, wears this panther suit, and the nation owes its um, its modernism, its technology, uh, to uh, controlling this really, really uh, important mineral called vibranium, which is like this really, really hard. It's what Captain America's shield is actually made out of. Hmm. And so he just, you know rules this nation he's king of this nation and he's basically a badass and so they asked me to write it this character exists previously or they have come up with this oh, yeah, character exists, yeah, yeah. Exists oh my in... god evan you don't know this no, man I, t- I tried to tell you i don't know anything <laughs> about comics i really i mean i know like the comics yeah. that made it onto like as cartoons or right, something right, 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 right. but i don't know comics as a world <laughs> so this is a character that has existed in he was invented in the 60s i'm gonna get so many emails about this yeah you are it's gonna be bad uh okay <laughs> he was invented in the 60s and so you are tasked with like carrying a new story forward yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it's exactly it i mean in some ways it seems like almost perfectly timed to like release this book and have talk about all these very heavy things and then yeah. say now i'm gonna do something totally oh this will be heavy different. too though yeah 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 i mean there'll be people punching people so that'll, that'll help. <laughs> you know, shooting lasers at each other. <laughs> Is it come naturally to you to sit down and write what's essentially fiction? Yeah, 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 it did. It did. I just sat down and thought, okay, you know what? You no, know, I read a bunch of Black Panther comics. 
you know, because there was no actual Black Panther comic around when I was collecting comics as a kid. And I thought a lot about him. And then I came up with what I felt was a logical extension of, you know, his story. Um, and then I asked them about it, sent it to him. And they said, yeah, we think we like this. Can you refine it a little bit more? And I sent them another. And they said, that's pretty good. Can you give us like a breakdown of the first, like a scene by scene breakdown of the first, you know, few issues? And did that. And they said, all right, go ahead, write, write, write the first issue. And do you write it as like panel one, panel two, and then Literally, someone draws it? Literally, looks like it? a movie script. Oh, wow. So I have to write 11. I'm contracted to write 11. I have four done right now. It's not coming out till April, but I'm trying to get it done like really, really quick because uh-huh. um, you said something about the book and you said the power of revision. And I really, really believe in that. Yeah. Like, I actually really believe the sooner you get roughs done, the better you off all the time. Because then you can sit back in this case, with your artist, with your editor, and say, okay, this is working, this is not working, can we change this, can we, you know, like, you just don't, don't think it's going to happen, like, you know, you're just going to spit it out, and then that's going to work. Yeah. You know, you need, so I'm trying to give as much time, so by saying I'm writing, I'm trying to write the drafts really quickly, so that there's enough time, <laughs> so there's plenty of time to rewrite. I feel like that's the part that's fun to me, that interaction mm-hmm. is fun to me. The actually getting the draft out, right. I find to be very painful. That is as, very painful. And then, that's extremely painful. And then the, everything from that forward is a lot better. Is actually oh, it's a lot better. Oh, it's a you're... lot more fun to move things around and yeah. uh, you know improve on things. That's that's just true. You, you find that in your journalism? Yeah, of yeah. Course. No, that's just yeah. yeah. And this is like when in the times that I've taught writing, like and students rarely believe me, but I always tell them, write it. <laughs> just just that's the worst part. Yeah. Everything will be better after you write something. Just something. <laughs> yes, yeah, something. Put yeah. something on the page. You yeah. have to do that. Are you also doing Atlantic stories right mm-hmm. now? Are you doing stories in France? I got a, a thing that Europe? I'm working on. Yeah, a uh, thing that I'm working on over there. Yeah, 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 yeah. No one will care. <laughs> yeah, I like that. You seem to have this special relationship with the Atlantic, mm-hmm. um, and I noticed it a little bit in the in the mass incarceration piece. Like you actually call out the Atlantic for stories that appeared in the Atlantic previously that sort of yeah. contributed to yeah. this idea of, you know, crime is exploding and incarceration is the answer, essentially. For you, is it the editing? Is it the, uh, because they gave you a job? Like, why do you stay uh, with Atlantic? Like, what is it that oh, about that relationship? That's the best job I've, I've, I've ever had. You know, probably short of working for David. I mean, um, and this is a lot less scary. Oof. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I stay there because I, I deeply believe in, um, and it's going to sound like a corporate answer and I'm going to make it non-corporate in a minute. Um, but I deeply believe in our, you know, co-presidents, um, James Bennett and Bob Cohn and editor magazine, Scott Stasson, the editor of the website, John Gould. And I have told them that as long as they are there, I will be there. The non-corporate part of that is that the Atlantic invested in me before all of this happened. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I told this story before, but I was working on um, a big piece for them on Bill Cosby and, um. I was like on unemployment. Like it was like I didn't have any money, um, and I was working on this story, and I had turned the story in. But you know, like when you freelance for a monthly magazine, I mean, you like the story will come out. And I think at that kind of time they paid either on publication or a month after. But you're talking like five months, and this was like this represented like it was like sixteen thousand dollars for this story, which was like a like again like a you know at that point you know, and I guess at any point, anytime somebody pays you for something like that, it's a huge amount of money. Yeah, it's kind of not actually if you calculate up your work hours and then, you know, divide it into it. Just It's just that it comes in one chunk. Yeah. You know, because you work on this stuff for months. Yeah, and never make that calculation. That's a, Yeah, no, don't a, do that. You don't don't do that. that. Don't do that. You'll reconsider your life. I just, I needed, like, I was like broke. And they were like, you know, it's like, can you, can you advance any portion of this at all? You have the draft in. You know you're going to go with it. You know, you know we're working on it. So can you advance some portion of this? And they 
said, okay, we'll pay you to kill fee. That seems small. Yeah. You know, so I think kill fee was about four or five thousand dollars, something like that. That seems like a small thing that any decent person should do. But my experience in magazines was not that people were decent like that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and then like they like the next story I had to do was like I was still not quite high up with them. I was like I had a contract for the blog and I was freelancing this piece on Michelle Obama and like the campaign would say like two days before, because this is when she when uh, Barack Obama was running, she's going to be here. You should come and see. Mm-hmm. And I told them, I was like, listen, I just don't have the wherewithal to buy a ticket two days before and go somewhere. Can you like advance me some money just for expenses? I'll keep all my receipts. They sent me five thousand dollars. Said, go ahead, go ahead. I mean, that sounds like silly, like to be thankful for things like that. But I, I I remember that. You know, I remember that and and they just have repeatedly, you know, invested. When I said I wanted to do a story on re- reparations, they were like not not like that's crazy. You know, that'll never work. We'll never put that on the cover. They were like, "Okay, go do it." And then when I, you know, got cl- in fact, you know, when I when I went off and first started doing it, they said, "You know, we should do this big. You know, we should have charts, we should have videos, mm-hmm, we should do mm-hmm. all of this stuff." I'd be crazy to leave. Yeah. I, you know, at this point, I just, I just, you know, as as long as you know they're running it as they're running it, you know, as long as you know David Bradley is running it as he's running it, it's very hard for me to go. One of the reasons I ask is I, I kind of wanted to talk about Jason Whitlock. Can we talk about Jason Whitlock? Sure. I'm not even like intimately familiar with. <laughs> you want to know what happened? <laughs> well, I, the thing I read that interested me most. I mean, there's obviously a lot of. Uh, there's a lot going on. Like he, he crit- critiqued the book on, on Twitter, and he had this thing in ESPN that's supposed to launch, and he ended up not doing it. But somewhere in there, I think who's the Deadspin guy that's been writing about it? Greg, Some, Howard. Greg Howard. Yeah. yeah, I've read all those things, and they're very, very uh, fascinating. But somewhere in there, it was like he uh, offered you a job or wanted you to come work for it. Yeah. For what I imagine was probably like. Uh, you don't have to say, but like uh, salary bump from what you get at the Atlantic, I would guess. ESPN's a lot of money. <laughs> he said that. But That's what he said. I wondered whether you entertain notions like that. Like maybe I'll just go write about. Maybe I'll just go do do no. this other thing. No, no, I wasn't gonna leave at all. Like yeah. that, it wasn't even. A, um... So I'm, I'm in this position now where, like, you know, I I, I I want to and I'm going to answer your question completely and truthfully but it's like I don't want to be in a thing with Whitlock do you know what I mean I don't yeah. want to be in a thing with people you yeah. know but this has become a thing so I you know I'll just tell you what happened um he reached out to me several times by email you know he had done his podcast and said what he was doing I, I knew I just wouldn't I, w- I wouldn't do that you know I just I mean he, I just wouldn't have went to work for him on a, on a project like that yeah. You know, um, and knowing what I knew about him, having read his writing, like what his aesthetic was. And I don't even mean his politics. I don't mean his politics. I mean, his actual because, you know, certainly people I've worked for before, <laughs> you know, and may would even work for now that, that have, you know, politics like like he has. It, it's the aesthetic that I just didn't. It just wasn't something that, that that really was me. And so, you know, finally, we set up a call. I just, you know, just uh, he said, you know, please, you know, let's let's talk. And so we talked. And at the time I was teaching up at MIT and I was in this dream job. You know, I had all I had ever wanted. I loved being at MIT. I had the thing at the Atlantic. I had just gotten out of class with my kids. And we were talking on the phone. And, you know, um, it was like if you were in the hood and some big-time drug dealer rolled up on you and said, I want you to work this package for me. That huh. was what his huh. approach was like. It was like, son, I can put you on TV. You could have stuff with ABC. You could, you know, do this. You could do that. You know, you might, you know. <laughs> he asked me what my salary was. I told him what my salary was. I had no problem telling him what my salary was. He said, oh, that's a joke. That's a joke. You could I triple your salary. 
I could triple your salary. <laughs> and I kept the whole time because I'm saying, I'm good. I'm okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm good. I'm good. And then he says, okay, well, you, you, you might be good. What does your wife think about this? Well, I said, boy, you don't want to ask my wife that question. <laughs> I said, you, you, I, was like, I, I think she's good. I think she's okay. <laughs> She'll be all right. He wrote me a few more times trying to get me to reconsider, you know, and I just I just said, no, listen, I, I don't I haven't talked about this. Right. I have not gone out of my way to. um, I have not gone out of my way to, like, you know, disparage, you know, Jason Whitlock or, or, or anything like that. I, I don't know what's with him. I don't I don't know what, what he's thinking. But since this has become a topic, that's yeah. what happened. Yeah. That's what happened. It seems pretty straightforward. You were offered a job and you didn't want you didn't want that job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But see, because of who he is, again, it like it became this thing. You yeah. know what I mean? Like it became this this other thing. And there are people who live like this. You know, um, he is um, he lives so out loud. He writes out loud. And and that's not like about you know being on social media. I use Twitter. You know you know what I mean? But he writes out loud and it's really sort of. Volume, and, and and seems to enjoy like like the combat between right, people. Yeah. And so that that makes you like polarizing, right? And so here I am over, like you said, I just you know refused the job, and and then like what happened was because I think at this time I, I don't think I had the profile. I, I definitely didn't have a profile. As my own profile, well, then it became like convenient to say, and he offered you know quote unquote big time writer time. Like that becomes a, a thing that you put in the story. Yeah. Right? And I don't you know Greg is doing his job. I'm not mad at Greg for doing that. I'm not. I don't want that to come off like that. But then it becomes this thing, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it, it's not just like he offered me a job and I, and I refused it, you know? Um, right. It becomes is there is there a beef here? Is there a th- like is there some sort of thing happening? Yeah, I mean, and you know, people, I, but... you know, was not on board with what he wanted to do. But I'm not on board with a lot of things that people want to do out in the world, and I'm certainly not on board with a lot of things that people want to do out in the world that people call me and ask me to work for. I get people that call me, ask me to work for stuff all the time. Yeah, you know. His approach was a little wild. <laughs> I will say that. The approach is not always like that. But, you know, I disagree with things that, you know, with projects that people have all the time, you know. Um, but it became this, like, thing. And then he went on Twitter and, you know, went after, like, my... Talking about how I didn't have any editing on the mass incarceration piece. Which you ain't got to like the mass incarceration piece. But, dude, I, I got some of the best motherfuckers excuse my language in the business you know like you know if i ain't got it i ain't got it that's one thing but i you know i got you know james man i got scott stossel i got a crack fact checking team a crack copy editing team you have no idea what went into that price you can't insult them man Come yeah on like he could go after Come you on. but not uh yeah no 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 I, absolutely not I, that's the only thing i've ever tweeted him like i don't like after that i really don't have anything that you can't go after you know my, my folks i mean you really you can't you just you just can't i watch i mean you know I got people who read that incarceration story. And, I mean, you know this. I mean, going through it with a fine-tooth comb, like, you know, I mean, you've been through this yourself and probably put people through it. I'm I'm afraid to say yes, I have. Yes, 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 and have literally done it because you were fact-checker for a while, right? (laughs) Like, literally and actually... All parts of this I've experienced. Yes, 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 yes. yes. Write a fact-checker and then put somebody, and then the actual editor put somebody through it. Somebody's looking at, like, paragraph three... You said the incarceration rate in Iowa in 1962 was 71 per 100,000. No, that was actually 1964. It was 69 per 100,000. <laughs> I mean, there's somebody digging up. And that happens like, like for a piece, it's like 16,000 words. I have long that was. That happens like 100 times through yeah. the piece. It's just a sea of little red marks. Oh, my God. That's somebody's job. Now, yeah. that pisses me off. I don't want to have to deal with that. You know, people get pissed off at their fact checkers, <laughs> but I respect it. 
You know, I respect my editors going line by line. I don't think this is quite right. Change this, do this. I mean, it, it, there's so much work. And then you, like, get this dude, you know, who couldn't even pull together, you know, his project. Tell me how you need an actor. <laughs> Meanwhile, he was auditioning to be that actor, right? Like, the guy who was just calling you up to offer you job to be, you know, it's like... So I don't know. Listen, man, I, I, I you know, um, it's out there now. That's what happens. <laughs> People yeah. feel however they want to feel about it. I, I was interested partly from the perspective of, I feel like you talked about these early times in your career where you're struggling, you're trying to become a writer, you're right. trying to get these gigs, and then you've, you've sort of advanced, I mean, even the, over the course of our interviews, right. to be in a position where you decide what the project is. Like, right. the project of your writing is in your control. Right. When I read that, I thought, like, I wonder if just, like, whatever he wanted was not part of the project that you wanted. I mean, there's probably, there's loyalty to the Atlantic and everything else, but, like, do you know what the project is going forward? Is it sort of like, I know what I want to write about No, down no, the road? you know what it was? I, I knew that, how, how could, and this is not, this is actually, this is almost for everyone I talk to. This is 99% of people who call me and, and ask me, do you want to do this, do you want to, can you duplicate the support I have? Hmm. Can you do? Because I'm not like I understand that like I I didn't do this by myself. Like I understand that you see me and you think like that's me. But you know I, I'm I'm wise enough. If I got anything, I know that like like that you know that fact check thing we just went through. Like that's that's a real thing. Yeah. Because if I get hung up on one of those statistics and I'm you know calling for reparations, that's my ass. That 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 article goes right into the to the wind. You know what I mean? If I don't have you know. Chris editing Between the World and Me. Like, somebody would have published the first draft of that. I'm serious. Mm-hmm. Like, they just would have said, oh, you got a name, you're at the Atlanta, let's just put this out here. People will look at it because it's you. Like, you need somebody that actually cares about, about the work. That ain't guaranteed. Yeah. I mean, you might get that, you might you might not get that. And so, I, I don't I got a lot of support. Yeah. I, I got a lot of support. And there are very, very few people who can do And I, I was pretty sure that they weren't going to be able to duplicate that. Yeah. You know? Um, right. But there are very few people who can. Who can? Right. Who can? It's... It's a small pool. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I'm going to let you go, but I have, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, ask you about the MacArthur genius thing in the context <laughs> of, I mean, you made a lot of jokes, jokes about it on Twitter, I about did. calling me genius. And yeah. actually I was reading one of the funniest things on Twitter. You, you kind of like were making these jokes about now I'm a genius. Now you got to call me a genius. Right. right and right. there was like a dude in your mentions who was kind of like, I think the MacArthur people are probably embarrassed at you today. <laughs> he was really actually like taking it su- right, right, uh, right, right, super right, seriously. Right, right. But um, but does something like that feel in any way like a burden or no. like the lifting of a burden? No, I mean, it's, well, I mean, when somebody gives you money, it's always the lifting. Of a burden. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> says, "Here's a half a million dollars." <laughs> uh, that that is always the lifting of a burden. Oh, I mean, I, I feel like I, I take it the way I've taken everything else. You know, the only thing that matters is what you do. You know what I mean? And 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 if I get the MacArthur uh, Fellowship and going forward, don't do anything great, then yes, it'll be a weight. Yeah. But I take it right now as as a motivation, you know. Um, it, like like when that happens, you know, it, it feels like you know it's like you were talking about like what David said to you, uh, you know, like it, it's encouragement. It's like oh my god, like you're actually optimistic about what I'm doing, and you're gonna put money behind it. Well, then I I really need to do this. Mm-hmm. You know, who am I to sit here and him and haw about what I did? And you know, I, I need I really really you know need to do this. So I just I take it as an um, injunction to go do something great. I really do. All right. Well, uh, why don't you come back for a fourth time after that? All right, we'll that do thing that. Comes out. Right. <laughs> right. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Up. 
And that's it for this week's Longform Podcast. I am the co-host of Longform Podcast, Evan Ratliff. Thanks to ta for coming in amidst uh, an ungodly number of media appearances and interviews that he had over those few weeks. And also congratulations to him on winning a well-deserved National Book Award. Thanks also to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer, to our editor, Jenna Weiss-Berman, to our intern, Molly Bain, and as always, to our sponsors, Casper, Squarespace, The Message, Podcast from Panoply, Masterclass, and our dear friends at MailChimp. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.